Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another episode of National Security Magazine, the DSR Network's show where we try to get deeper insights by going one-on-one with leaders in the national security community. Today, we are delighted to have with us General James Clapper, who is a former director of national intelligence, uh, a former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, a man who has been a leader in the military and in the intelligence communities for decades. Uh, And uh, welcome, General. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So clearly one of the places that we need to begin here is uh, the recent and perhaps ongoing uh, upheaval that's taking place in the office you once occupied, the Director of National Intelligence. We had um, uh, the departure of Dan Coates, the requested departure of Dan Coates. We had the effort by the administration to suggest his replacement should be a conservative congressman from Texas named John Radcliffe. That did not work out very well for a variety of reasons, most notably associated with his lack of experience in the area. Uh, We then had the departure of the person who should have become the acting director of national intelligence, uh, the the deputy in that job, who I believe you know um, well, Sue Gordon, and then um, the announcement that she would be uh, replaced uh, as the, the, the acting director um, by the man who is now the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, Joseph McGuire. Uh, she was reportedly unhappy with the way this worked. She is highly regarded uh, in the intel community. Uh, she's a longtime professional, and she wrote a rather terse note to the president of the United States saying, I offer this letter as an act of respect and patriotism, not preference. You should have your team Godspeed. Um, uh, so this has caused a lot of concern, although McGuire is, is, is a well-respected guy, um, because the president has been at odds for so long with the intelligence community and because it has been his express and explicit desire to... Um, put loyalists in these jobs. So I begin with asking, what is your take on all of this? Well, it's uh, never a good thing to have this kind of turbulence uh, in uh, anywhere, in in any organization, and particularly one as complex, large, complex, and sensitive as the intelligence community. Essentially what's happened here is the... uh, you know, the leadership of the Office of Director of National Intelligence has essentially been uh, decapitated. And you're quite right in your characterization of Sue Gordon, whom I have known for many years, who is a real uh, career professional, 
which I think by definition, uh, President Trump is uh, uh, suspicious of. Uh, I, for whatever reason, does not trust uh, uh, not just intelligence people, but I think uh, career uh, civil servants. And uh, it's clear from the telegraphy or the messaging from uh, his aborted nomination of Congressman Ratcliffe that, you know, the primary trait that he's interested in is in loyalty and uh, less less concern about uh, one's professional credentials. You're also quite right about, uh, you know, who should have been the successor because the law that governs the uh, – DNI, the Office of the, of the Director of National Intelligence, is pretty clear about who fills that vacancy if the DNI is gone. It's supposed to be the principal deputy, in this case, uh, Sue Gordon. Now, having said all that, I have to say that the intelligence community is pretty resilient and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll survive this. Joe McGuire, whom I also know, is uh, a great American, a great patriot, very storied career in the Navy uh, as a SEAL. Served previously in active duty as uh, a part of the National Counterterrorism Center and then came back now to be the director. I'm sure his head is spinning. I don't think this is something he was uh, ready for or and he certainly didn't campaign for it. But uh, I think his... Uh, steady hand at the rudder uh, is a good thing, and I think um, probably is, is, is encouraging for the intelligence community. Well, it's unclear whether he will actually be nominated to be the director of national intelligence, so that leaves one question mark hanging over this. But another question mark that's hanging over this is, what is the president going to use as metrics in making the decision about who becomes the director of national intelligence. Um, and, you know, clearly some of the president's interest has to do with the role the intelligence community plays in the dramas swirling about the president in investigations uh, pertaining to the president and Russia, investigations pertaining to members of his team, security clearances and other kinds of things. And what he doesn't want is an intelligence community, apparently, that's going to make these things worse. Now, there's no sign um, that um, uh, uh, Joseph McGuire uh, is going to um, uh, go along with any of this. Um, but, you know, perhaps you know, from the president's point of view, the you know, he can achieve his goal by simply leaving a question mark on the leadership and sort of distancing the intelligence community from these processes. Um, uh, but he's also sent a message. You know, he sent a message to the intelligence community that if you are, you know, giving answers I don't like, we're going to have a problem. Do you think that has a chilling effect or do you have confidence in career um, IC members to to resist that kind of pressure? Well, that's, that is a, a crucial question. Uh, it's, it's my belief that the intelligence community will uh, continue the tradition of uh, you know, the bumper, bumper sticker mantra of truth to power. And if uh, there is a slanting, tainting, uh, 
politicizing of intelligence that that is not good. Not only is it not good, you know, for the presidency, but it's not good for the country. And so that's going to be the key thing. And I I think um, you mentioned the the metric uh, uh, of loyalty. Well, I think anyone who is appointed, nominated for this position uh, is going to have to, I think, make a decision about just how that's going to be played. Um, Because I do think that uh, whoever is the nominee will get a, uh, you know, a pretty serious scrub in the Congress, in the Senate, for confirmation. Um, so, but you you raise the, the you raise the big question here is what 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 how will this uh, affect all this overall? How will this affect uh, whoever is nominated and and then uh, if 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 confirmed uh, the behavior of the next DNI. Now, one of the other things that has, of course, happened uh, over uh, the period of time uh, that overlaps with your tenure and since then uh, is that the mission, the primary mission uh, uh, of of the Director of National Intelligence has shifted as priorities shift. Uh, And, of course, if you had taken the Director of the National Counterterrorism Center and plunked him down as Director of National Intelligence at most points in the past a couple of decades, that would have made a lot of sense. Counterterrorism is the core issue. Now, alongside counterterrorism as an issue, you have concerns about cyber and information warfare, for example. Um, And specifically, of course, we have the aftermath of the 2016 election cycle, where we saw Russian interference in the U.S. elections. And we saw a presidential candidate, Donald Trump, embrace that. Uh, and we have subsequently had investigations into the nature of his ties with them. But there's no question that he um, has resisted doubling down in protections against this kind of intervention. He has rewarded the Russians in a number of policy fronts. Um, and right now, the stance of both the administration and uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, is one that sends a clear signal that they are really not interested in having a big in-depth discussion about what the Russians are going to do on the road to 2020. And yet, few things could be more essential to the United States, and few things will be more, you know, sort of top of the order for whoever's running uh, the director of national intelligence. And so the question becomes, um, do you see this as a flashpoint? Do you see, you know, someone doing their job as having to go to the president and say, look, these are serious issues or testifying before Congress and saying, yes, we've got a problem going on here that echoes 2016 and makes the president uncomfortable. Um, And, you know, is this going to be, you know, problem area? Well, it uh, again, it, it, could, it certainly could be, uh, and you're quite right about um, the president's reaction to this. I mean, that was his reaction when we briefed him on the intelligence community assessment that we rendered on January 6 of 2017, which documented the uh, uh, all at the time we we really scratched the surface in light of what we've learned since, but the magnitude and the scope and the potential impact of uh, the Russian interference. And the president uh, just 
couldn't get his head around that or didn't want to because to do so would cast doubt on the legitimacy of his election. He's been very consistent about that. And I think that carries over today to his uh, reluctance, which has been imparted to the to the Republican Party, his reluctance to embrace uh, security measures to uh, secure our uh, and to guard our election apparatus in its in its totality against foreign interference. And in 2020, I think we're going to be facing an even more complex and diverse threat because other countries are going to emulate what the Russians did in 2016. So you're going to have, I, I predict, you're going to have the Chinese and the Iranians and perhaps the North Koreans involved in one way or another in trying to influence the outcome of the 2020 election. So uh, to me, it's incumbent even to a greater degree uh, to, to safeguard against that. That has always been my uh, concern from the get-go. I wish more t- attention had been paid to volume one of the Mueller report, which went into exhausting detail about the depth, the magnitude, the scope, the breadth of what the Russians did to interfere in our election process. And this is fundamentally intended to undermine our country and its very institutions. And this, to me, is a very profound threat. And uh, I'm sure lots has been done to enhance the security of our election apparatus. But just it's good to remember that this is a very decentralized system since election, the conduct of election is done at the state and local level, not at the federal level. And so I'm sure uh, there's been progress made, but I would bet it's probably uneven among the 50 states, the individual agencies, the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, the National Security Agency, I know, have, I'm sure, have done lots of things to try to enhance election security. But in the absence of the leadership and the voice from the bully pulpit that only the president occupies to galvanize the American public about the threat. Uh, I'm very concerned about what's going to happen in 2020. Well, it, it's it's even worse than that because you haven't had, you know, just an absence of leadership, but you've actually had um, measures to stigmatize uh, efforts to counteract or or monitor Russian interference. And so as we go into 2020, you've also got the Attorney General of the United States conducting an investigation into why certain people were under surveillance, which he can cast a wide net. And the president has sent a message to the intelligence community that they need to uh, cooperate with the Attorney General. And of course, you know, any of us who've been in government know that you don't have to have big public confrontations. You can simply you know, send a message to somebody's office saying, we're going to come and talk to you in a couple of weeks about this. And it already has a kind of a chilling effect. Um, and then, of course, all the publicity around the Mueller report and the Mueller investigation has become so politicized that almost at this point, if you say the Russians are taking this action, one side of the political debate in the United States is going to criticize that um, for being, you know, adverse to their interests, while another, you know, 
you know, acclaims it. And so it becomes very hard to impart information objectively or at least have it heard objectively. So I guess what I'm saying is it sound, it, sound, it seems to me like not only is the president not leading, but it the, the it's going to be more difficult perhaps in 2020 to blow a whistle or to point a finger than it was in 2016. Well, it's, uh, I, I suppose it could be, uh, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I, you raise a good, a, a, a serious concern here. Uh, it's hard to, um, at least it is for me, to forecast how this, how this actually will play out in, in, in 2020. Um, uh, but I, the, the politicization in this country is, is like I've never seen it. And you're quite right, the Mueller report uh, simply uh, reinforced the previous views that people already had, either uh, in support or supportive of the president or opposed to him. And uh, I don't think it uh, changed many opinions on the, on the margins. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Um, it's unfortunate that the results of it were ambiguous, but it is what it is, as they say. Well, you know, one of the things that strikes me, and I, I'd just be interested in your perspective, is, you know, I guess the level of Trump-Russia fatigue that the country has and the speed with which the Mueller report was dismissed. Now, admittedly, the Congress is entering into a new phase of this uh, associated with uh, uh, impeachment inquiry. Um, but, you know, for example, the, the, there is a, com a counterintelligence component of the Mueller report, um, which has essentially fallen by the wayside, at least in terms of the public debate. We don't know what's in it. We don't know what it has concluded. Um, we also found out that certain areas, like the financial ties of the president, his family, and those close to him were just set as off-bounds to Mueller. So, so we don't have any information on those potential areas of uh, compromise. And, and, and we don't have certain information on the involvement of other countries as well. And I, I, are you surprised at, at, at how sort of quickly we've dropped the subject as a country? And do you think that those areas which we haven't really d d dived into, um, you know, need more attention? Well, uh, actually, I'm not surprised. Uh, I had anticipated that uh, the Mueller report, once it was finally published, because of all the uh, buildup, the anticipation, the expectations, uh, was somewhat anticlimactic, and I, I figured that was the way it was going to be before uh, it was released. And the fact that uh, the um, evidence of collusion didn't rise to that, whatever collusion is, didn't rise to that of a conspiracy, which, you know, that is a crime, but that the evidentiary uh, bar wasn't achieved for that, and, of course, the uh, ambiguity about obstruction, I think, um, blunted the impact of, uh, of the Mueller report. Now, of course, 
the issue now is what, if anything, will the Congress do about that? Well, it, it appears, I guess, that uh, impeachment inquiry is, is underway uh, in the House, at least the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, what will that lead to? Will uh, uh, that lead to the testimony, for example, of, of, uh, of McGon, the former White House counsel? Or will there be other revelations that might uh, somehow uh, change things? And the bar that the, uh, no pun intended, that the Congress is using, at least the House, is, you know, high crimes and, and misdemeanors, uh, whatever those are. And that's, that's something to be determined by the Congress. So these are still uh, imponderables, um, and I don't think the legacy, if you will, or the, the albatross, perhaps a better, a better term for uh, Russia and the investigation is, is always going to be uh, uh, plaguing the president in this presidency. Well, I, I want to switch the subject in a minute, but I have one more question on this that just strikes me as I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying. Um, and that has to do with uh, the the fact, you know, and I'll put it in my words, I, I, I don't want to characterize how you might feel about this, but the president of the United States was made aware of the fact that the Russians wanted to help him, inquired into the fact that the Russians wanted to help him, was informed of the fact that the Russians had certain information, uh, publicly embraced the idea of the Russians distributing the information, had multiple members of his team with over 100 contacts with the Russians, um, and uh, denied that the Russians helped him in any way, and subsequent to his election, sought to reward the Russians in a policy sense, defend the Russians, and obstruct the inquiries into what the Russians did. And the Mueller report has said, well, you know, that doesn't rise to the level of conspiracy. But in my view, it, 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 it does rise to the level of what at least should be considered as a high crime and misdemeanor, because in fact, the president of the United States did, to use his favorite word, collude. And it may just have been a wink and a nod. But you know, if, the, if, if, if your enemy says, let me help this guy, and the guy winks and says, sure, go ahead, that's going to be good for all of us. And there's no direct conversation between them, but the quid and the pro quo happen. Um, that's betrayal of the country. And what we've done inadvertently in the midst of all of this is we've set a standard for how a presidential campaign could benefit from the intervention of a foreign power um, without actually violating criminal law. Uh, and we've essentially said, go ahead and do it to the point that the president himself has said, well, if somebody came to us this time around, we might take it. So, I mean, d d to me, that's deeply disturbing, but I, I, I you know, I'm wondering what well, your view is. It's, uh, yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's, it has been disturbing to me since I, I first learned about uh, what the Russians were doing uh, in the last administration. So, Yes, this is very disturbing. I, I've used the phrase, which I, I've been criticized 
for, but this at least represented passive collusion. And as the Mueller report uh, pointed out, that the campaign expected that they would benefit electorally from the Russian help. Um, and so the exhortation of the, of, of the of candidate Trump in uh, July of 16, uh, you know, go out and find those emails that you'll be rewarded speaking publicly to the Russians. Well, he may have tried to, you know, portray that as a joke, but the Russians took it seriously because it wasn't five hours later, they were out, out looking for Hillary Clinton's emails. And certainly the meeting in, in Trump Tower on the 16th of June of 16 uh, is indicative of intent to collude. The dozens of engagements, meetings that they encounters that members of the Trump camp had with uh, the Russians, Russian representatives, many of whom, actually all of whom are in some way or another connected to the Russian government without reporting any of them to the FBI. So these are all, at least to me, uh, very concerning. Now, hey, I'm a Cold War warrior. I have great suspicion about uh, the Russian, Russian intents, but particularly as long as Putin is running things in Russia, who is, has very strong animus towards the United States and, and all it stands for. Well, there's certainly plenty of reasons to uh, maintain that kind of concern, you know, with the events of the past week, whether you're looking at, you know, uh, uh, Russian nuclear accidents with military intent associated with them, or, or you're, or you're looking at what seems to be on the verge of happening with regard to Brexit and the weakening of the European Union, which had uh, similar Russian involvement to what we saw in in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. I guess this this gets me to a to, to to bigger issue and just one I'd like to to wrap up with because I'm sure a lot of the conversations you've had over the past couple of years have been focused uh, primarily in the issues we've just touched. But one of the things that we've we've focused on a lot um, in our organization, on our podcasts, and, and particularly in recent weeks, is that the world is in a, a, a difficult moment. And we in the United States, because we are in the early stages of political campaign, because we have a president who sucks up a lot of the oxygen on the television uh, or on the internet, um, we don't notice it, but if you simply go around the world and you look at the state of the situation in North Korea with renewed missile testing and more nuclear warheads being built, if you look at the state of the situation in China with Chinese troops massing in Shenzhen and 10 weeks of demonstrations in Hong Kong and more and more violence associated with them or uh, China and what's going on in Xinjiang province and the roundup of the Uyghurs and three million people um, in uh, detention camps. If you look at the heightened alert and probably the most dangerous place in the world, Kashmir, um, between India and Pakistan, but China watching closely and the United States having played a, a role in sort of tweaking the problem upward with an intemperate statement of the president. You look at Iran uh, and the removal of the JCPOA creating greater tension um, uh, in Iran and questions regarding um, nuclear capabilities there, but also conflict um, in the region, you look at what's going on in Europe with 
um, the UK contemplating Brexit, but you know it's not impossible that at some point a Salvini government might contemplate something similar for Italy, and you have weakening of key elements of the Western alliance. And I'm not even getting into the fact that you know whether it's the despoiling of the Amazon or fires in the Arctic or the melting of Greenland that global warming, which is a global threat, has gotten worse. These are all, you know, what, you know, I don't know how you'd characterize it in during your day in the intelligence community, but these are all kind of, you know, red flashing light situations, any one of which has the capability of spinning upward. We're not even having discussions about these right now in the United States. Um, but when you were preparing threat assessments, I, you know, my sense is these are all the kinds of things that would be, you know, front burner. And um, it's, you know, we're distracted from all of that. Now, I trust the intelligence community is not. But if the policymakers who are to be listening to the intelligence community are, it's the same thing, isn't it? Well, uh, the, the litany of, of concerns and challenges and crises and potential threats that you, that you just uh, went through is um, – Actually, it's been with us for several years. It just the, the examples may may be different, but the the forces uh, and trends have, have been there. And I remember remarking at uh, worldwide threat assessment briefings that I gave in Congress over the last three or four years. I made some comment about never have I seen a more diverse array of threats and challenges than the United States confronts today. And of course, the issue is. Uh, is the United States uh, going to exert the leadership uh, in addressing all these uh, threats and concerns and challenges as we have in the past? And we have become more and more consumed uh, internally. Uh, domestic issues are, are really uh, taking a lot of oxygen out of our national energy. And uh, while these issues kind of go neglected or uh, without the involvement of the United States. And uh, I, I think um, examples that come to mind, which you, you alluded to, is just right now the, the tension between India and Pakistan. Uh, typically, the United States would be very, very much involved in trying to uh, uh, cool the, the, the temperature uh, of uh, of such uh, of such disputes, and, and we're not doing that. Now, that part of that is that's the conscious policy of, of this administration: is it's America first, and and uh, uh, we're we're apparently not going to exert the leadership that we have for some seventy plus years since the end of World War II. So, if we're not, mm -hmm. then who is? Well. Somehow, others will fill that vacuum, whether that's Russia, China, or or we know. Well, you know that's been one of the big questions, you know, throughout the twenty-five, thirty odd years that I've been involved in in following foreign policy. You know, people constantly complain the United States is playing too big a role. It's big footing issues. Uh, should dial it back a bit. Um, uh, but then, you know, when the United States doesn't get involved, there there's a complaint on that front too. One of the things that worries me about all the issues that I just described, um, which relates to what you were saying, 
is that at all the other cr critical points in history in the past, you know, 100, 100 years or so, when a serious bad actor arrived on the scene, there was a counterbalance. There was the United States, or there was the United States and, and Great Britain. There was, mm -hmm. you know, a Western alliance. There was something to, to, to counteract it. But right now there's a void. You talk about China and Russia stepping up, or, and there are regional actors stepping up. But the United States has stepped away, and Europe has proven to be incapable of stepping up. And so there's no champion, you know, for our side of the argument, or to be overly simplistic, you know, you know, for the good guys to stand up against autocracy or aggression or violation of human rights or violations of international law or undermining international institutions or undermining international peace and 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 you know common interests and so you know we 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 find ourselves in a situation which seems to be making the case that you know post trump if the united states doesn't step up um we 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 can expect a further deterioration because the chinese and the russians and others will lead and there will be no counterbalance well, I, I can't disagree with you. Uh, I think that's that's the, um, the that's the implication of our uh, of our our turning inward to, uh, to a certain extent. Um, we've been uh, the leader and architect of a, a series of alliances um, around the world, notably NATO. Uh, the friction now that's going on between uh, China, between Japan and and uh, Republic of Korea. Is another example where we don't seem to be very involved in, in trying to bring those two parties together. Well, that, that has implications for U.S. national security in Northeast Asia. Uh, when those, when our two key allies are, uh, you know, fighting, at least at this point, diplomatically and economically fighting between them, between them, that's not good. And so, where all, all this is going to go? Well. I, I don't know. It's uh, uh, I don't have a lot of uh, optimism as to whether we're going to enter into an era of more chaos uh, in the world. You mentioned uh, climate change, which I, I think is a is a global uh, issue, a global challenge, has huge implications for national security, and yet we're kind of uh, you know burying our head in the sand about it. And uh, th this is uh, I think is an overarching uh, impending crisis for the planet. And once again, uh, U.S. leadership is critical. And right now, it's not there. Yeah. You know, I, I used to comment giving speeches or participating in panels sometimes that the United States was the only country in the world where no matter what happened anywhere, somebody walked into a meeting at the White House and said, what should we do about it? Um, and in most other countries, the discussion was, should we do something about it? Um, but I'm not even sure that conversation is happening in the White House right now. I'm not, I'm I'm not, not sure, you know. And, the interagency processes that, uh, which I thought worked pretty well in the last administration, I, I don't know how much of that is, uh, how much of that goes on today. And that, those 
that was was a strength of our national security system for addressing problems and coming up with solutions uh, in an organized way. We don't seem to be doing that much anymore. Well, indeed, you know, I've I've written a couple of books about this and the the you know, since the National Security Act of 1947, the goal, the recognition was that no one person could keep abreast of everything all the time. And so we needed to harness the whole of the interagency process, experts in all the agencies and bring together their knowledge in a way that top policymakers could make a decision. And all of the key sort of synapses that connect the interagency process to the final decision maker have broken down in this administration. There is no effective process of this sort uh, by the president's own admission. Uh, and so, you know, you talked at the very beginning about the 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 decapitation of um, of of the Office of Director of National Intelligence. We've had the sort of self-inflicted decapitation of the United States government. Uh, and that's what creates this void everywhere around the world. And, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in the day's headlines about politics and so forth. But it seems to me that the broader implications of this breakdown um, are are of greater concern. Well, yeah, they are. And certainly long term, uh, which we're not real good at, but long term, it's... Uh, potentially uh, very ne negative implications. And uh, it's something I think, uh, you know, people care, uh, should worry about. Yeah, that's, that's, that is, that is, that is certainly true. Well, General Clapper, thank you very much again for taking the time to join us, uh, to share your views with our audience across the country and around the world. Uh, these are difficult moments and having somebody who has your depth of experience, but also um, your real commitment to public service and patriotism um, uh, to discuss them with is, 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 a, is a real privilege for us. We're very grateful. Thank you for joining us. Perhaps we'll persuade you to come back again sometime. Sure, David, and thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.